the plan of God outworking through the local church by the power of the Holy Spirit, frankly, is incredible. We wouldn't exist without the Holy Spirit's work. But suffice it to say, we do more than just exist. We serve, we strive, we thrive, we change the world all according to His plan and His purposes. And one of the key ways that the Holy Spirit sustains and grows the church is through gifting individuals to serve and to lead. We can look around this room and we know who we can thank for their diligence. We know whom God has gifted. We thank them for their service in making Grace Church of the Bay Area what it is. But here's the thing. Whether it's the usher that greeted you this morning, your small group leader, your women's group leader, the deacons, whoever it may be, that popped in your mind when you thought of those who have been gifted by God to serve the church, it is not just those handful of people that have been gifted by God. The church exists because God has gifted all believers, every single one. It doesn't thrive the way it does And it doesn't thrive the way He desires simply because there are few who are gifted. In fact, to put it negatively, you could say that the church doesn't thrive the way God intends because not everyone is using their gift. There's much in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. And those passages indicate very clearly that we have all been gifted. And this morning we embark on a study of the largest section dedicated to this aspect of the Christian life, spiritual gifts. This section is found in chapters 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians, with each chapter having a different angle. For example, the chapter we're going to begin this morning, chapter 12, presents and explains spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, as many of you know, explains the importance of love and its superiority over any spiritual gift but also the necessity of biblical love for spiritual gifts to be used properly, to work effectively. Then chapter 14 talks about the outworking of the gifts or the gifts at work, how the gifts are to be used in a way that honors God. Like much of what we've seen in 1 Corinthians thus far, the reason Paul addresses spiritual gifts is because the Corinthians are not using the spiritual gifts properly. They have them, and they know they have them. They're using them, but they're not using them in a way that honors God. They're not using them in a way that God desires or for the reason that God gave them these gifts in the first place. In other words, as we saw with the Lord's table or communion, the Corinthians are abusing a gift from God. And before we unpack all of this rich teaching, Paul must first introduce the topic, and he does so in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 12, our passage for this morning. Turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and we get an introduction to this whole discourse on spiritual gifts that goes all the way through to the end of chapter 14. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led away or led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, these three verses introduce the whole three-chapter section on gifts. They are an introduction to this topic. And as such, this morning, I want to give you three foundations to understanding spiritual gifts. Three foundations in his introduction to understanding spiritual gifts. The first foundation to understanding spiritual gifts is the definition. If we want to understand what he's teaching about spiritual gifts, we need to know what a spiritual gift is. How would you define a spiritual gift? Again, in verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So Paul shifts his attention from the Lord's table to spiritual gifts, clearly marking a new topic with that phrase at the beginning of verse 1. And you have, if you have the New American Standard Version in your laps, you have noticed that the word gifts is in italics. And that means that the word gifts is not in the original manuscripts. So what we have here is English translators putting in the word gifts to help us understand more clearly in the English language what he is referring to. In the Greek, we just have the word spirituals or spiritualities. Now concerning spirituals, brethren. This could refer to spiritual things, such as gifts, or spiritual people. Now we know from the context and the later usage of the exact same word that he is referring to spiritual gifts. So what are spiritual gifts? Well, first, as the English indicates, but in the truest sense of the word, they are a gift. They are something that God gives every believer that the believer has not earned. He has not earned it. So it's not that some people have given more public, more widespread spiritual gifts because somehow God saw them worthy. No, he divvies up the gifts as he sees fit. It is a gift. It is not a salary. It is not a bonus. It is not a promotion. It's a gift. And he gives them out as he desires. Now, with that understanding, you know that a spiritual gift can be something that the believer perfects. It could be a skill that he can hone. I can get better at my preaching by practicing and studying, for example. But the initial ability and the ongoing help comes from the Lord. And just as you may gift a child a bicycle, it is up to the child, and very importantly, with significant help from you, it is up to the child to learn to use the bicycle and then to learn the bicycle even better. But you gave him the gift, and you're there alongside him as he learns. So unlike a gift you and I would give at Christmas, these gifts are spiritual. What we will unpack over the next many weeks at the, is that this is first and foremost spiritual in nature. Now that's obvious from the phrase. But it is a good reminder that these gifts are to be used for spiritual purposes. In other words, in the Christian's life, a spiritual purpose is the glory of God, the growth of His church, the edification of the saints, the evangelization of the world. They are to be used by the gift giver. 
They are spiritual. And you get this. As a believer, you use the word spiritual unlike the rest of the world does. The unbeliever uses that word. That word rather. He says, I've had a spiritual experience. They're not talking about a God-given experience. They're not talking about something that they grew closer to God with. They, they just use it in a different term. And other religions, other people looking at crystals, doing yoga, they talk about spiritual. We understand spiritual means for God's glory. Spiritual means for the betterment of the church, the one and others. These gifts also, as we continue our definition, they come in the form of abilities, not physical objects. Although most, if not all, spiritual gifts will utilize physical objects such as money or your car or your home or other resources, your physical body, in order to maximize the spiritual gift. But the spiritual gift is not like the gifts we give. Here's a set of Legos. Here's an iPad. It's not a a physical object. It is an ability. It is a function. It is something that you can and should do. And all spiritual gifts are given for the purpose of ministry. Thus, they are given to all believers. It's not that all the gifts are given to any one believer, but all believers are given at least one spiritual gift in some measure, and that gift is given by the Holy Spirit. It is one of His roles as a member of the Godhead. And like much in your Christian life, And we'll talk about this a lot as we go through because the Corinthians are doing this. Like much in your Christian life, they are to be submitted to His will and under His control for the glory of Christ, but spiritual gifts can be used selfishly. They can be used sinfully. Your God-given abilities can be used just for you to get more money, have more vocations, make yourself glorious in the eyes of the world rather than God. You can use them selfishly. You can use them sinfully. You can use them for evil as the Corinthians were doing. A key verse regarding spiritual gifts that we will undoubtedly refer to more than once in this series is 1 Peter 4.10. I'd like you to turn there. 1 Peter 4.10 is one of the key Verses regarding spiritual gifts and our understanding of them. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's some things I want to unpack from this verse before we get back to 1 Corinthians. The first thing I want you to notice in 1 Peter 4.10 is that the gift, the spiritual gift, is assumed. As each has received a spiritual gift. It means since, just as, because, to the degree that, to put it simply, every believer has a spiritual gift. He doesn't say, if you are one of the ones that God has chosen to give a spiritual gift, no. He could say that and still be referring to everyone who's a believer, but it would be simpler just to say, since you've all received the spiritual gift, let me tell you what to do with it. So you have been given a spiritual gift if you are a believer. You may not know what it is. You may not be able to put your finger on it. But rest assured, by God's own word and His promise, you have one, 
And what you have is to be used for God's glory. I might add that if, even if you don't know your spiritual gift, it doesn't mean you are not to serve. You cannot sit back idle and not involved in the church and say, I just can't figure out what my spiritual gift is. You are still called to serve. Incidentally, that's one of the best ways to figure out what your spiritual gift is. Similar to how many universities make you take a year or two of general ed classes. Even if you've declared a major because they want you to be sure to try out different things because maybe you want to be a scientist or a doctor and not an economist. Maybe you want to be a teacher and not a businessman and so they force you to take various classes. In the same way, the more we serve, the more we can figure out and the more we can hone our spiritual gift or gifts. A second point to understand from 1 Peter 4 is that your spiritual gift is a stewardship. You're familiar with this phrase, this concept from elsewhere in Scripture. A steward back then was simply someone, uh, usually a, a house slave who lived in the home and would be responsible for taking care of the owner, the master's things. They're not his things. They belong to the master, but he is in charge of them. And in previous studies, we've seen that the steward even had control of making sure there was enough food, which meant not giving the kids too much food. Not starving them, but not giving them food that they didn't need just because they were bored or whatever it may be. Even clothing and making sure when the kids' clothes wore out that he patched them up or found new clothes. It was a very important role, but the food and the clothing and the house and the kids were not his. We understand that we have many stewardships. There are many things we're stewards of that God has given us. We can say in the modern vernacular that it is ours, it is my family, it is my house, it is my car. You understand that. But they ultimately belong to God and I am to use them as He sees fit. And when we say that our gifts, spiritual gifts, are a stewardship from God, even your abilities, because everything you are belongs to God, but even your abilities are a responsibility that you have been tasked by God to utilize for His glory. It is His gift that He has given you but still has ownership of. You are responsible for it. He has put you in charge of it. And you can think of a steward and even understand that if you are not actively serving in the local church, you are not serving the body, if you are not serving other believers, then you are like that steward who just lets the food go rotten. Or the pantry go bare. Say, I know I'm responsible and I know I have this stuff, but I'm not going to do anything about it. People get hurt physically in that situation. In our situation, people get hurt spiritually. You have a responsibility. And every single believer, whether you have a home church or not, whether you're church hopping, shopping, looking around, whether you are a believer but haven't gone to church in weeks, or since March of last year, you have a spiritual gift that you should have been using even on Zoom, even from home, and are to be using now. You are to fulfill your duties faithfully, which means consistently and according to the rules of the gift. Just like we just sang, great is thy faithfulness. Always, consistently, evermore. Still looking at 1 Peter 4.10. Thirdly, look at what we are stewards of. And this should blow your minds. 
If you ever see service and stewardship of a spiritual gift as a burden, I have to do it. This should change that radically. You are stewards of the manifold grace, the very the diverse grace of God. These gifts are the grace of God, and they come in various forms. We understand that. There's some that are obvious that are listed in Scripture. There are some that kind of you read between the lines. And there's some that you say, this is my spiritual gift. I don't really see it in the list of spiritual gifts in Scripture, but this is what I honor God with. And that's fine. That's great. Because God's grace in our spiritual gifts is varied. It's diverse. They come in various forms. And when you properly serve and apply your abilities to the church, you have the immense privilege of embodying and engaging as a vessel of God's grace. How wonderful is God's grace in your life? The grace of salvation, the grace of life, the grace of daily living. And you get to be that. It is not just some giant hand in the sky with a thunderbolt. It is you. You are part of God's grace to other people in the church and the people around you in the world. And if that does not blow your mind, I don't know what can. I don't know what will. That we are vessels of the grace of God. And as I mentioned earlier, as with your money, as with your possessions, as with your family, spiritual gifts are given by God but can be used selfishly. And again, that's what the Corinthians are doing and that's why we get this Great teaching on spiritual gifts. And when you look at everything that we've seen, these lessons in 1 Corinthians as a response from the sin that they're engaging in, you see a pattern among them. It's a pattern of selfishness and indulgence. We've seen the abusing of Lord's table, the Lord's table for self, gluttony, drunkenness. We've seen earlier than that indulging in gray areas for self because you want to, because it feels good, because you like it, even though it may harm other believers. And now we will see the Corinthians using gifts for self. And we'll see later in this series how they are doing that exactly. A quick point of clarification before we go on. In first, we're back in 1 Corinthians. Although they won't be mentioned in this morning's passage, the spiritual gifts that Paul refers to are what we call sign gifts. They are the charismatic gifts. They are gifts that are no longer in existence or in effect today. However, the principles we learn about how to use them or not use them is applicable today to the gifts that we do have. In the same way that you are not dining at an idol's table or in an idol's temple, or getting drunk at communion time. So you may not be abusing the gift of tongues, but you can still learn from the Corinthians' mistakes as we did with their idol temple attendance or their drunkenness at the Lord's table. We still learned about the seriousness of choosing the right side of the gray, of choosing to be selfish and coming in a worthy manner to the Lord's table. And so even though these gifts we do not have, we do have spiritual gifts, and we can apply the lessons to our gifts today.
We can learn from Corinthians' mistakes, and we can learn from Paul's instruction. So that's the definition. And as we go through this uh, study, through chapters 12, 13, and 14, I imagine it will take several weeks, if not months. And I'll remind you of various aspects and probably add uh, to our definition of spiritual gifts in different ways. But let's move on and look at the second foundation to understanding spiritual gifts, and that is the deception. The deception. A verse, and again, this is introductory material. And so like many introductions, whether it's an introduction to a, a novel or a TV show, it doesn't seem to fit with what you know about the, the total theme of the book or the story. And so too, verse 2 seems strange, out of place, but we'll get to there. He is introducing something very important in regards to spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. So in setting up the next verse, verse 3, Paul reminds them of their pre-Christian lives, perhaps adding some spiritual details that they had not fully considered before. Understand that the ancient city of Corinth was filled with religious people, religious buildings, religious leaders. It was a city filled with priests and priestesses. Everywhere you went, there were temple prostitutes, there were diviners, there were those that worshipped, followed, and led everything from the common polytheistic religions of the day that you learned in high school to various smaller mystery cults that we still have not much knowledge about today. All of the religions claimed to be substantiated by supernatural powers, gifts, from their god or gods. Now, ex existing in a culture like this, it was natural for some Christians to hold on to past behavior or even adopt the behavior of the world around us. It's hard for us to picture this. Once in a while, I, and perhaps you also, for me, it's usually at an airport, I will see two or three Buddhist monks in their brown and orange robes, head shaved, even those who are clearly women. And they seem very out of place in San Francisco, makes sense because they're in the airport, they're traveling through, they're not from around here. Were I to jump on the same plane as them and follow them to their temple, it would be normal for me to see Buddhist monks everywhere, people on their knees throwing pieces of wood to the, a big idol statue of Buddha. That would be normal in that temple. Some of you have experienced this in your travels. That is what Corinth would have been like. And I just say that because sometimes it's hard for us to picture people who are clearly from the externals, religious people, all around us. But that's what Paul would have seen. That's what the Corinthians would have seen. And so with that being the status quo, the norm of society, you can see how the Christians within the church, especially not as well taught, this is the early church, the first church, they don't have centuries of the church behind them, they don't have writings and commentaries and printed Bibles for them to have a more depth of understanding like we do today, and so even more so, they would adopt the behaviors that they once had and those of their family members and friends and co-workers and those in the marketplace, basically everyone around them. We do this. 
today in 2021. From politics to materialism, the influence of the world creeps into the church. For them, it could very well have been politics and materialism as well, but also religious behavior, beliefs, and traditions of pagan religions, of which the Corinthian believers once belonged. Again, very different today. Someone can come to our church and say, I'm a new believer. You say, what religion were you before? You say, I didn't really have religion. And that's pretty normal. In fact, I would guess that's more the norm, at least in the Bay Area. But back then, you wouldn't have that. It's like, oh, yeah, I was a worshiper of Aphrodite. I was Jewish. I followed the Jewish religion. I was part of this mystery cult, whatever it may have been. And so you can see even more so this, these thoughts and these habits. And so Paul makes it very clear that there is a distinction between paganism and Christianity by making a clear distinction between pagan spiritual gifts and Christian spiritual gifts. And the fundamental distinction will actually be addressed in verse 3. In this verse, verse 2, what Paul is highlighting is both the demonic power and the foolishness of paganism. First, he says that before they were Christians, when they were pagans, they were led astray. I want to point out another difference between them and us because I think it will help us to understand what he's talking about. I want to point out that in our society, when we use the word pagan or paganism, it tends to draw pictures of Satan worship, uh, dripping red pentagrams, or even uh, perhaps a cannibalistic tribe deep in the Amazon. But the word used here and in its original context simply means non-Christians. More to the point, again, the non-Christians there would have been involved in another religion. But it is a basic word for all non-Christians. It's like when we say Gentile. In the Bible, it often refers to unbelievers, not just non-Jews. And so we have to understand that because it's not just the most heinous that were led astray. It wasn't just the demon worshipers, the Satan worshipers that were led astray. And we've seen before that they're all demon worshipers. But there was no official religion for Satan as there is today. It just means non-Christian. We know that even the self-proclaimed atheist worships something because Christian or not, everyone worships something. And so that helps us understand the use of the word pagan. Everyone worships something. They don't have to be involved in a religion to worship something. Most people worship themselves or some form of self such as money or popularity or power. But back then with religion, again, being an elemental part of society, most everyone worships some god or goddess. But no matter what the society is, religious or not, everyone worships something, even the atheist. Now Paul says all the Corinthian believers prior to their faith in Christ were led astray. And to give you a proper picture, this was a term often used to speak of prisoners that were led or taken by armed guards either to prison or to their execution. 
And in terms of false religion, the forces that led them were clearly demonic. But these demonic forces were like those armed guards. The prisoner has no choice. The prisoner doesn't even try to flee because they understand if they're just being led to prison that if they try to flee, they have just enacted a death sentence back in Roman times. And if they try to flee being led to a death sentence, they've just sentenced themselves to an earlier death, just not in front of a crowd and perhaps less brutal. And so, in a spiritual sense, those who are non-Christians, including all of us when we were non-Christians, we were led astray. We weren't grabbed by the collar or handcuffed by a demon, but we were under the influence of the world, which is according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan and his demons. Now, what they specifically were led to, again, in their religious society, were mute idols. The word mute represents more than an inability to communicate or speak, although that's what it specifically means. But it simply means, Paul is emphasizing, that they were not real. It wasn't that they could walk and they just couldn't speak. He's using mute to identify them as non-entities. I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, that speaks much about uh, this description of idols and what they are. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. And as we read this, I think some of you will notice that it's familiar. And it's simply a description of idols back in the psalmist's day and in Paul's day and today. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. What's that talking about here? Just picture a a statue of uh, your favorite idol visits to India or Chinese restaurant or whatever it may be, they're usually in the image of some sort of animal or most likely some, uh, a human being. And so that statue has ears. That statue has eyes, has feet, it has a throat, all those types of things. And yet, it cannot use them in any way that they're supposed to be used, uh, much like your child stuffed animal or Lego minifigure. It's just a thing. It has an eye, it has eyes, it has a mouth. They can't use them. So the psalmist indicates that not only can they not speak, not only are they mute, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't smell, they can't walk, they can't touch. Then why does Paul only talk about them being mute? Well, in this context, it highlights and contrasts the work of the Holy Spirit, who is very important when we talk about spiritual gifts, And what did the Holy Spirit do as opposed to being mute? You think about and look at his other roles in human history. He communicated revelation. He spoke through the prophets. He assures us of salvation. He expresses forgiveness and comfort and gives spiritual gifts, whereas the idol does nothing. 
You could say the idol is more than just a statue. It is a puppet of the demon world. At best, the idol, the idol worshiper, can claim to speak on behalf of the idol. And the, the priests and priestesses, temple prostitutes, diviners, prophets of these religions, they did that. They claimed to speak on behalf of the idol. And indeed, the idol needs a living being to speak on its behalf because it cannot speak at all. But when a representative of that religion speaks on its behalf, you know that all of those thoughts and words came from that individual. They are His words. They are His thoughts. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, who is not mute, makes us speak that which no human being would speak on his own initiative. The most important of which is confessing Jesus as Lord. You would not make that up. You could not make that up. You would not declare that with truthness, truth in your heart if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. He is not mute and thus He makes us declare and say things that would be otherwise humanly impossible to speak and declare. How does this connect to spiritual gifts? Aside from the confession of Jesus as Lord, being connected to and a prerequisite for being given a spiritual gift and the Holy Spirit enabling that gift, this emphasizes the freedom and grace we now have in Jesus Christ because we are not controlled and led astray by the demonic forces. The grace then found in the spiritual gifts given and the freedom to use them in a way that glorifies Him. You are no longer bound to the world and to your selfishness and to the forces of Satan and demons. You are now free in Jesus Christ and you are free to use this spiritual gift as a manifold grace of God. We have freedom. We can glorify Him because we are in Christ. And part of that glorifying Him, part of being a Christian, means utilizing that spiritual gift that you were given at the point of salvation. As a side note, this, among many other principles in Scripture, addresses the unbeliever who says that he does not want to become a Christian because of the restrictions of Christianity. You've heard this before. I don't want to be Christian because I want to live my life. I want to be free. The irony is that they are now bound and led astray, whereas only in Christ can they truly be free. Perhaps, perhaps not led to a physical idol, but led astray nonetheless. So, Paul makes this clear presentation of their former deception because the Corinthians have let old practices and beliefs mix in with their current Christian living, their current Christian practices and beliefs. And the result was that they were confused or even worse, unable to distinguish between right and wrong as well as the Holy Spirit versus worldly or demonic practices and spirits. By the way, 
that is a common result of any unrepented sin in the believer's life today. You get confused, your conscience is seared, and you can no longer distinguish that which is from God and that which is from your sin or from the world because your morality flatlines. You start blending the two, you start justifying, and pretty soon you don't even need to justify anymore. You don't even remember what your justifications were. That's just your life, and your life is Christian, so this must be okay, whereas it's simply gross sin that you've gotten used to, and you're confused. When someone brings it up, you're confused. You don't understand why, why they're quoting this Scripture to you. What does this have to do with what I'm doing? And when there's a sermon preached where people can come away and say, ah, this might have been referring to this sin, but it definitely is referring to this particular sin, and you have been struggling with that sin for so long, you walk away from that sermon having no conviction at all because you don't think it has anything to do with you because you're confused. You've let that sin fester so long. I like when you let a wound on your arm or your skin fester, it starts opening up and the doctor says, now you're prone to even more infection. And the original problem, you, you don't even care about. That was, that was a cakewalk compared to the, the infection you have now and the problems you have now. And that's what sin is. And you start saying things like, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I didn't kill anyone. At least I don't beat my kids. And then later it's just, well, it's just the one time and I asked for forgiveness. Kids don't even remember. The bruise was healed. The teachers believed the story that he fell off his bike. My wife forgave me. Things are better now. I've never seen that woman again. Wasn't a problem. Don't need to take it to the Lord. Deception. The deception of their former lives is now infiltrating and deceiving them even as believers. And this is why he continues to give them a fundamental distinction between the two. That brings us to our third foundation to understanding spiritual gifts, the distinction. We've seen the definition, the deception, and now the distinction in verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking of the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You understand that in your life, and in the unbeliever's life, and in anything that is significant or even insignificant to the whole of humanity, everything hinges on whether you believe Jesus is Lord or not. Everything. If you do, it is only by God's grace that you can believe that, that you can declare that. And so, no one speaking by the Holy Spirit says Jesus is accursed. Accursed refers to severe condemnation. It's a word you may have heard before, anathema. It's someone or something that is cursed, and in their idolatrous society, it would be a word used by something or someone that has been abandoned by the gods. 
You've read stories by this in, in, in uh, the, the mythical Greek gods. Right? That's the last thing you wanted was for the gods to abandon you. Right? A lot of our favorite Disney cartoons are based on the fact that the hero or heroine has been abandoned by the gods and they're trying to no longer be abandoned by the gods. Now, cartoons aside, this was a serious thing to say and a serious thing to believe had happened to you were you an unbeliever in Paul's time, to be cursed by the gods. Now, outside of the gods, because... As believers, who really cares if Jesus is considered cursed by the gods or any other spiritual force? They, they do believe that. They think that. But for someone to say that would be just really, really evil and wicked to say about Jesus Christ. Because to say that Jesus is accursed is to condemn Him and to get, condemn all that He is. To say that His Nature, His work, His sacrifice, His holiness, His glory is not just non-existent. It is something nasty that we want nothing of. Clearly no believer would say this. Elsewhere in Scripture, this is the same thing as blasphemy. This is what the Jews who sent Jesus to the cross were saying. Even in Acts, the apostles were saying the Jews are condemning Jesus. Same idea here. No believer would say this, and if for whatever reason he does, they are not words inspired by or under the control of the Holy Spirit. However, what does come from the Holy Spirit and can only be truly believed if under the control of the Holy Spirit are the words, the proclamation, the declaration, the belief, as Paul says here, Jesus is Lord. Again, anyone can say those words. They're just words. But to truly believe and mean them is only of the Holy Spirit. In other words, whoever does this truly has the Spirit in their heart. They are a believer. Why? Because proclaiming Jesus as Lord is not just lip service. It is to affirm the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ to acknowledge that He was raised from the dead and is the Lord of lords now and forevermore. But it's more than just a proclamation of who Jesus is. It is also a declaring of one's allegiance to that lordship, a submission to His authority, His authority over every aspect of our lives. And so we have been given here in verse 3 a test of sorts. On the one hand, only the Holy Spirit speaking through men will truly declare Jesus is Lord. And only someone who does not have the Holy Spirit would declare that Jesus is accursed. In this context, this test is not about whether one is a believer or not, but whether a spiritual gift is valid or not, if it is from the Lord or not. See, it's more than just the presence of a spiritual gift in your life. The Corinthians had spiritual gifts, but they were using, using them improperly. They were, they were either using them in accordance with the Holy Spirit and His proclamation of Jesus' Lordship, Jesus is Lord, or they were using their gifts for selfish gain and falling more in line with pagan worship. 
Jesus is accursed. To put it another way, just because you have the Holy Spirit and just because He has given you a spiritual gift does not mean that you use that your use of your gift indicates the Spirit's presence in that particular usage. It may help you to understand this concept by going back to the Lord's Supper, what we saw the past few weeks. The Corinthians were believers. They were at church. They were taking the bread and the cup. They were reciting the words of Jesus that we now have in Scripture. Do this in remembrance of me. This bread is my body for you. The blood, the blood of the new covenant, do this in remembrance of me. They were saying all of that. They were praying. They were singing. And remember what Paul said because of their heart attitude in that? Even going through the motions? This has nothing to do with Jesus. He is not here. He is not present in your so-called celebration of Him. You say His name. You say you're doing it in, in remembrance of Him. You're saying you're taking these elements to, in gratitude for His sacrifice. But this has nothing to do with Him because of how they were approaching and performing the Lord's table. You remember this. In the same way, you may be using that ability that has been given to you by God. You may be using it at church. The recipient may be another Christian but you're not doing it to glorify God. You're not doing it out of biblical love, as we'll see in all of chapter 13, is necessary to use your spiritual gifts properly. You're not doing it out of love. You're doing it for whatever reason, so people will see, so this person will like me, so he'll owe me one, so I look good in front of the church, so I feel good about myself because I want him to buy whatever I'm selling, so he'll become one of my clients my spouse or kids aren't embarrassed, whatever it may be, that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. That gift was given you by the Holy Spirit, but what you're doing right now, the Holy Spirit's not there. It has nothing to do with God. Just like the Corinthians and the Lord's table, just like the Corinthians and their spiritual gifts. So the ultimate criterion of whether or not that act is one of the Holy Spirit, whether Jesus is exalted or not, is about your heart. Not about whether you're a Christian or not. Not about whether you've been given a spiritual gift or not, because those are synonymous. You have a spiritual gift. But whether or not your goal is to exalt Jesus Christ. It may even be a pragmatically good reason I want our church service to run well I want the people in our church to be taken care of I want the visitors to feel welcome but for what if it's not to exalt Jesus Christ then the Holy Spirit is not there is it of the Holy Spirit or not exalting self Exalting your local church, exalting your pastor, not of the Holy Spirit. 
exalting Jesus, exalting Christ, exalting the Lord of the Holy Spirit. And I think you all notice that those three words refer to the same individual. It's all the same. Are you seeking to glorify God in your service, in your use of your spiritual gifts, even the use of your non-spiritual gifts in just serving others? We need to be careful. We need to be careful we don't get so far that we're just selfish. We're doing it for selfish reasons. I don't think I need to give you a list of what that looks like. You, you know. You get it. You understand. But as I mentioned earlier, we need to be careful of just kind of going through the motions. Not worshiping God. Not, not, not thinking about God. Just being here. Doing it because that's what I've always done. That's what Christians do. It is because of this attitude that so many people, even pastors, even authors of books that you have read, even uh, pastors, former pastors whose sermons have led you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, are now saying, Jesus is not real, I don't believe in Him. Because of this culture of just going through the motions, doing things because that's what Christians are supposed to do. And I will warn you, the bigger this church gets, the more the easier it is to do that. You want to excel at that? Go find a church of 500 or more. Over 1,000? Ooh, easy. They'll breed that in you and your, your families if you're not listening, if you don't take the effort to get involved in the small groups, which they have. We need to be careful because we could be growing as a church we can look externally like we're growing and the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with us. And it does, doesn't come down to me and my preaching. It doesn't come down to all of this stuff, the equipment and the setup and the people and the people you think of when you think of Grace Church of the Bay Area, your small group leader, deacons, your di disciples, whoever it may be. Because when you think of Grace Church of the Bay Area, you need to think about you. Because you're part of the church. You've been given a gift. If you believe in God's sovereignty, what you do, you understand that you are here at this church to serve at this church. God put you here. God gave you a spiritual gift. It doesn't take a neuroscientist to put two and two together to say, then that means I need to use this gift here with these people. I am not Grace Church of the Bay Area. Dennis is not Grace Church of the Bay Area alone or Kyle or Chris, or your small group leaders, whoever. We all are. And what we will see as we unpack this is we need to be using them because that great passage on the body, remember that? I cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. That's talking about this. This is talking about spiritual gifts and how to use them properly. We need each other. You say, well, I've been coming. I don't really serve. You know, I don't want to commit because I like my freedom. I don't want to have to be here on whatever weekend, Sundays you assign me. And you say, but the church is thriving, the church is growing, things are going well, but not the way it could. This is a general principle that bleeds from the church to any other company, organization, family. I, when I was in Albania and, and my wife and I, we didn't have kids yet. 
And one of the missionaries on our team with the largest home because they had three, four daughters. Four daughters, uh, teens and preteens at that time. And I was like, how do you do all this? How do you keep everything clean? How do you, how, how do you do your missions work and take care of your daughters and walk them to school and help them with the language and all this type of stuff? And then one day after dinner, where they had invited us over dinner after we were just hanging out, and the mom and dad just sat down and hung out with me and us, and the girls were I'm like, oh, because I'm thinking baby. We're, you know, we're thinking of having a baby. I'm like, so much work. I'm like, oh, duh. As they get older, they do it. They clean up. They cook. They clean their own rooms. They help things. They can go to the market on their own. You don't have to walk them there. And that's how it is with the church. You can look at this church and say, how in the world are we going to keep going if there's only four people doing the work? It's because that's not how anything functions. We all need to be doing the work. And so though you may be looking at this church or your church or whatever church and say, yeah, this is, you know, it's great. I can just come and listen. Ooh, I like great preaching, but, uh, you know, don't want to get involved. But it doesn't look like it's hurting anyone. It's hurting us. It's hurting us. You may not see it. We may not even know how it's hurting us, but we can't excel and we can't be the kind of church that we are supposed to be, not that we want to be, that we're supposed to be in God's design because not everyone is serving. A company doesn't hire a whole department just so they can do nothing. They hire them because they're going to work. They created that department. They decided to make that, prog that product or sell that service because they knew they could hire people that would do that. It's the same thing with the church. As we grow, we need you to be involved because it just doesn't work. And that's just all practical. Not to mention your own sin against the Lord by not using your gift and not serving. I don't know about you, but I want to live my life not just in how I preach, how my words come out, how I counsel, but how in my heart I view the Word and view God and view all of you and view my counselees in a way that my life reflects someone whose life and words embody the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guard us against living our lives and setting aside our spiritual gifts so that we declare with our mouths Jesus is Lord and live as if we are Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have given us money and time and days off that we can enjoy, that we can spend time with family, that we could go and see the world and partake of various foods without even going more than a block from our homes. But guard us. Guard us from loving the things of the world so much that we neglect your body, the church. Guard us from making excuses about spiritual gifts, whether we say we don't have one or we don't know what it is or 
We just don't want to use it and be committed. Thank you so much, Lord, that we have spiritual gifts, each and every one of us. For those who may not be able to pinpoint what it is, may you make that clear to them and may they use it for your glory and for the building up of your body. How sovereignly, Lord, I see in each person's story here how you have provided over and above what that individual and their family needs. Help us to use that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close.